HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin leads the nation in the production of specialty cheeses, accounting for 47% of the total? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. I always get a bang out of that intro. I don't know why. And then I was just thinking, gee whiz. You know, Jack Inslee picked that music for me, Dave. Isn't that sweet? Anyway, hello, people. This is Katie Kiefer. This is uh, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. We are broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And it is my very great pleasure to introduce my guest today. I have Mike Weaver on today. Mike is the president of the organization of competitive markets, and he also serves as president of the Contract Poultry Growers Association of the Virginias, which represents broiler, pullet, egg producers, and turkey growers in West Virginia and Virginia. He is a board member or officer of Allegheny Highlands Alliance, West Virginia Special Olympics, Potomac Highlands Wounded Warrior Outreach, and South Fork Ruritan Club. He's also a member of the American Legion and the National Wild Turkey Federation. Mike, you are a busy dude. Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, I get over, a little overwhelmed occasionally, but I try. Uh, it sounds Thanks. like it. I don't know how you manage to stuff all that in and run your poultry farm in addition. Pretty impressive. Well, all right. That's enough bragging about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't be modest, Mike. That doesn't become I anyone. I don't do that, and I don't really like people who do brag on their <laughs> That must be that Southern upbringing of yours. Um, Mike, tell us about the organization of Four Competitive Markets. What is it, and how do you effect your mission? Well, we're a farmer advocacy group. Uh, we're composed of... Uh, mostly farmers, but we have some academics, some media people, uh, and it, it's the whole range of all the agriculture sectors from dairy to grain to beef, pork, poultry. Mm-hmm. Covers about everything. Yeah, it and sounds... We, we do our best to try to promote uh, uh, legislation and anything else that we think needs to be promoted that will assist and help improve the situation for family farmers. Right. And so how do you define, let me just ask you this, how do you define a family farm? Is it, is there a, a number of acres or a number of livestock head or like, how, how do you, how do you decide who's a family farm? Well, I mean, that, I that qualifies that, for your know. help. Let's put it that way. Say it again. 
that qualifies for your help. I mean, sometimes a family farm can can be a family that you know owns a huge spread and is deep in the pocket of industrial agriculture. So that's why I'm asking the question. Like that is that is occasionally the case, less and less, of course, but that does exist still. Um, so that's why I'm asking. You know, when a family farm is is it does it need to be under a certain number of acreage acres or or head of cattle or or poultry or whatever? No, we we don't really have numbers or set a limit on anybody. But mm-hmm. I agree that these mega farms out there are most of them are company owned in one manner or another, and, and they use the farmer as a figurehead so that they can brag about being family farms. Right. Okay, that was. We don't really advocate for them. We advocate for the little guy who's trying to stay in business. Mm -hmm. That's what I was trying to get at. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about why agriculture needs your organization for competitive markets. You know, let's 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 dissect a little bit of the consolidation that has gone on in the agricultural sector over the last I don't know what would you say forty years, thirty years, or more. Well, it's. Probably 40 years, uh, maybe a little more, but it's slowly progressed over the years. It's gotten more and more, and it's really gotten out of hand now. Mm-hmm. We're uh, we're extremely concerned about the, con- the consolidation on every level, uh, uh, the buying up of smaller companies, um, uh, and even on you know local levels to, to an extent. Uh, the equipment companies are starting to buy up smaller ones. Uh, they're consolidating. Um, the, uh, the the grain companies are <clears throat> starting to push out the smaller dealers and just move to to larger dealers. And you know that that affects farmers on every level. Sure. So describe what that means. Like, so if a grain dealer buys up all the small grain dealers in you know in a within a two hundred mile radius, what does that mean for a farmer like you? Well, and they're facing pressure too. They're <clears throat> the companies are coming to them and saying, you know, we we want you to deal in our seed exclusively. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we've been told stories that uh, they're even at doing to the extent that if you don't do that, you're not going to get our grain anymore. Whoa! And you know, they want to be as diversified as they can, even small operators to try to satisfy as many of their customers as they can. Right, and if if they don't have certain seed that has certain traits, then they're going to lose that customer. So it's uh, and we've even been told stories uh, by uh, grain cleaners. They call them out in, out in the Midwest uh, who uh, clean people's own own seed for them to try to get the weeds and such out of them. That that they're getting pressure from companies like Monsanto to to stop doing that on the local level so that people won't reuse their own grain and they'll have to buy it from the big corporations. Uh-huh. And so how would a Monsanto, um, how, how, you know, I understand that they're administering a threat there, essentially, um, or putting pressure. I mean, it sounds like a threat, but what can they do to uh, somebody who's a grain c- cleaner that would actually put them out of business? What's What's their tactic? Well, I actually had a grain cleaner tell me that uh, they were following him around in his area, and when he come out of a farm, they would go into that farm and they would threaten the farmer, tell him if he buys grain from that guy, he's not going to get it from Monsanto. Jesus! You know that—that's mafia strong arm tactic. There. That is, 
It absolutely is. Yeah. So you must be viewing the potential merger of Monsanto and Bayer with considerable trepidation. I know I've, I've been following that quite closely. Oh, yes. That, that's something that should never be allowed. We've, we've been trying to fight that on every level that we possibly can. Yeah. And, including um, going to Congress and meeting with the Department of Justice about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So your your organization actually goes to the Department of Justice, and do you lobby in Congress as well? Do you go to congressional members in farm states and elsewhere to try to persuade them that these kinds of mergers and and uh, you know consolidation are are harming rural America? Oh yes, and, we we advocate on uh, Capitol Hill as much as we have time for, and then mm-hmm. some. Really, on my part, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think I spent uh, I made eight. Or nine trips to Capitol Hill last year, and three or four of those, maybe five, were three-day or, or longer trips. Wow. And who do you talk uh, to, Mike? Do you actually get in to see a senator or a congressman to present your case, or are you talking primarily to staffers? Well, both. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's hard to get in to see a congressman or a senator. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but... Uh, we do accomplish that occasionally, and, and we have some that work with us that are their allies, and they they see the issues basically the way we do, and and uh, they're very open and honest. And uh, one that comes to mind immediately is uh, uh, Marcy Capter in the Ninth District of Ohio. That's northwest corner of Ohio, close mm-hmm. to Toledo. She's been a wonderful advocate for us. And last week I went to D.C. to uh, participating in a reception for her, honoring her as the longest-serving woman in the U.S. House. No kidding. Wow. Yep. Were you part of their service for uh, Women's History Month. Right, right. So you must have been sad to hear when Louise Slaughter uh, died, passed away last week. Yes. Yeah, because she was a great advocate for, well, maybe not for the things that you care about. I don't know. She was really, really a great advocate from my point of view in terms of trying to get the antibiotics out of the supply stream for, you know, animal agriculture. But that may not be yeah. necessarily what you what you would like to see happen. I don't know. Well, I, I, would, I, I agree with that. That's, that's an issue that I think has got to be addressed, and we should all be concerned about that as consumers. Yes, I think so too. I mean, I'm I've been doing I've done many many shows about that. Um in fact, I was looking at my archive today because I'm after this, you know, I'm I'm um going to record a show about sort of about my my show. <laughs> Well, nothing wrong with that. I know. Well, you were talking about bragging about yourself, and I feel like, uh oh, Mike's going to hate me for this. <laughs> well, no, you know. But I've been doing this for ten years now. This is yeah, my tenth year. Well, there's year. a difference between stating the facts and bragging on yourself. Okay. Well, I appreciate that distinction. That's very kind of you. So let's let's go back for a second and talk a little bit more about how these major companies. Um, you know, have have gobbled up the smaller companies. So we just talked about Monsanto and Bayer, and then we could talk a little bit about, like, say, in your sector, uh, JBS, which bought Pilgrim's Pride, and I think you contract to pil- with Pilgrim's Pride, right? The poultry? Yes. Yeah. So um, do you think that that, uh, that there's any chance in the, in the future that some of these really big companies like JBS uh, will be forced to break up uh, because of the consolidation in the market? Or do you think that's just like a done deal and it's move forward and try to keep anything more from happening? Well, I, it's hard to call that, but I, I hope that Congress and the Department of Justice and whoever else is involved enforces our antitrust laws. If they do that, 
Monsanto Bayer merger will never happen, and That's right. some of the existing consolidation that's taken place will be broken up. Yeah, I certainly hope that's the case. I mean, I think it's long overdue. And I was looking for other organizations like yours um, when I was researching this show, and I found one called the American Antitrust Institute. Do you guys work with them at all? Yes, we do. Yeah, because that's like a that's a big pool of lawyers essentially um, that work on these issues yeah. and and work directly with the Justice Department, as far as I could understand from their website. So they sound yes. like a powerful ally for you. What about other organizations like yours? Are are there are there well, Many, you know, we, we work with all the organizations that advocate for for uh, family farmers. The National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, National mm-hmm. Farmers Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole list. Yeah, right. I've interviewed a lot of those um, organizations myself. So, but it's it's not clear to me how much you all work together, and that's why I was asking that question. I feel like. Um, you know, a lot of times these these organizations seem to be a bit siloed in the sense that they, you know, they each have their own agenda of what they think is most important, and they don't necessarily seem to be reaching across to other organizations to present uh, as much of a united front that, as I think, is probably necessary to force any kind of, say, for example, antitrust legislation. What do you think about that? Well, I agree. And uh, uh, all the ag sectors haven't been coming together and speaking as one voice and, and uh, creating a larger force either. And that's one of the things I've been advocating for since I've been president of con- or Organization for Competitive Markets is getting everybody together. And, yeah. And uh, going after them. You know, we, uh, we've we all won a little battle here and a little battle there, but we're, we're not big enough to fight the money uh, in big ag. Right. Uh, Unless you pool and, your resources. Yes. Exactly, and that's uh, uh, since I've been president, we've gotten the dairy folks involved. We're we're working with the grain folks a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've I've also reached out to uh, National Farmers Union and even American Farm Bureau. I, I just got a card from Zippy Duval yesterday. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I, I had a chance to meet him in Washington not long ago, and he and I agreed that we have some mutual issues that we could work work together on, so we're trying to set up a meeting. Um, to go back to the, uh, the people that you meet with in Congress, um, why, why do you think that, uh, that many of these congressional representatives, be they senators, be they congressmen, um, why are they so essentially blind, as far as I can tell, um, why are so many of them? I mean, as you said, there are definitely people who are on your side. There's, you know, there's... Uh, no. But but essentially, I feel like there is a big knowledge or information Katie. gap. Katie. Yes, sir. Hey. I'm Katie, sorry. I, I didn't get any of that. Oh, you didn't hear any of that. I know suddenly your connection is breaking up. Yeah. Um, well, we'll try it again. Why do you think Congress is, uh, you know, even though there are some people who advocate, you know, on your behalf, as it were, why does, why is it, do you think that so many of uh, our congressional representatives, whether Senate or uh, House of Representatives, why are they so blind to the impacts of consolidation on rural America, uh, and why are they so slow to um, to address those impacts and also to to add more sort of services to the rural economies, like broadband and the things that would help, you know, generate you know, a closer, a closer knit community within the agricultural community. 
what is the, what is the disconnect between uh, legislators and the actual people in the business? Well, <laughs> you really really want my opinion? It's money. I do. <laughs> well, money money is the main determining factor, at least it seems to be, and that's that's a cry and shame. You know, we we don't have politicians or statesmen on on Capitol Hill anymore. They're politicians for the most part. Mm-hmm. There are a few that are still honest people, but you know when they when they grow in they go in dirt poor and they come out of, come out of multimillionaires. Something smells bad to me about that. Yes, I somebody agree. needs to be looking into that. That should be stopped. And and if you go to Capitol Hill, it's a constant stream of lobbyists coming into their office. That's another thing that needs to be changed too. You know they're there for the people. They're supposed to be representing the voters, right? Not these big corporations. That's right. So, for example, you would you would support overturning Citizens United, the 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 uh, you know the Supreme Court decision that allowed unlimited money into lobbying money into politics. Absolutely. That's you know how how the Supreme Court could, could rule that a corporation is a person. Yeah. That's beyond me. Yeah, I think so too. That's beyond belief. But I you, just I can't fathom that. No, I, I find it incomprehensible. <laughs> it's got to be changed. Yeah, but, you know, it makes me wonder because a lot of um, farming folks tend to be on the conservative side and vote conservatively. Um, I I know that in polls, uh, for example, in the Midwest, a lot of those um, a lot of those uh, farming folks did tend to vote for Trump. Um, And now we see that the Trump agenda is not necessarily going to benefit farmers. And I'm, I'm wondering if there is any do you get a sense among your cohort that people are beginning to change their attitudes towards uh, the Republican Party in general, and and certainly President Trump in particular. Do you think that's going to going to change in the twenty eighteen elections and and further on into twenty twenty? Well, the, by and large, the folks that that I talk to about that are are still keeping a wait and see attitude about President Trump. Really. Including me, and and that's been hard to do, uh, considering some of the things that Sonny Purdue has done. Uh, Talk that, about that. Has damaged small family farmers. Well, what can you ex- can you explain what you mean by that? Tell, give me some examples of what Sonny Purdue directly has done as Secretary of Ag that you feel have been detrimental to the interests of your cohort of of small and medium sized family farms. Well, um, the. What we labeled and called for many years the gypsy rules, right? That uh, turned out to be farmer fair practice rules, right? When the, when the three were released last December by or a year ago in December by the Obama administration, uh, um, they essentially did away with those, and we're still um, pretty upset about that. As a matter of fact, Organization for Competitive Markets is suing the Department of Agriculture for that to, mm. to try to demand that those be implemented. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he restructured, uh, took away some some of the authority of the Grain Inspection Packers and Stockyards Administration. Yes, uh, broke it up, uh, made made it two different divisions. Put the Packers and Stockyards uh, Administration underneath uh, the Agricultural Marketing Service. Now, to me, that's just unbelievable that that occurred because uh, AMS uh, advocates for the corporations and promoting uh, the sale of agriculture, not farmers. And, and packers and stockyards are 
uh, is supposed to be the advocacy enforcement group for small family farmers and the abuses that are imposed upon them. By. So, you know, how does that work? Why do you put a, a agency like that underneath a, a larger agency that advocates for the companies when they're supposed to be investigating the companies and their abuses? That just doesn't make sense to me, and it's wrong. Mm-hmm. That that needs to be changed too. Uh huh. I think they, so. They essentially downgraded Packers and Stockyards Administration, who who is really the only enforcement arm uh, in USDA that that handles farmer issues. Right. Yes, I, I mean, I, I, I personally am, am very anti-President uh, Trump, and I'm very anti-Sonny Perdue, and I, I fear for you, all you farmer guys out there, uh, when it comes to renegotiating the farm bill. I don't think that's going to be a pretty sight. Um, I'm going to, you know what, let's take a short break. we got to do the sponsor drop, and then we'll come right back with Mike Weaver, who is uh, the president of the Organization for Competitive Markets. Stay tuned for this conversation. This is really important, folks. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the line with me today is Mike Weaver, president of the Organization for Competitive Markets. We're talking about, um, you know, really the nuts and bolts of American family farming, uh, which uh, Mike does an able job of representing through his organization. And I wanted to um, I wanted to continue our program by kind of jumping into the the checkoff program issue, because I, I we have about 40, no, we have about 20 minutes left, and um, I, I just want to be sure that we get into checkoff because I know that your organization is lobbying heavily <laughs> for some major, major changes in the USDA checkoff programs. And for people who don't know or listeners who have not heard about checkoff, this is a, a, a tariff essentially levied on every single farmer, uh, be they grain, be they dairy, be they meat, um, which uh, which is paid into the USDA coffers to allow for marketing uh, for those products uh, to the public eye. So, um, so the USDA is in charge of them. And, you know, one would have thought that they really represented the interests of farmers, but um, they don't really seem to do so. And I, I wondered if you could kind of take us through why that is. I mean, why is it, 
Why is it so heavily skewed towards corporations and not towards the people who are actually paying for these marketing services? Well, initially, when they first created the checkoff programs, they they were a good thing. They promoted family farmers and our interests, and and uh, they did uh, eventually lead to bringing some more uh, of the food dollar to to the farmer's pocket. But over the years, the corporations have slowly taken over the checkoff system, and they use it now to promote the companies over the farmers. And, and we pay the bill. You know, that's what really irks me about that situation. Sure. Is I, I have to pay it every time I sell a cow, whether I like it or not, and then they turn around and use it to promote the companies. How does that work? Mm-hmm. So that's wrong. It, I, I and think that needs so. to be changed. And that's why our legislation is proposed, and to introduce some more uh, accountability and, and transparency into the checkoff system. Well, I read, and I think it was on your website, uh, I read that the National Cattlemen's Beef Association – um, which I've tangled with a few times, um, that they um, only represent about 18%, is that right, of of uh, cattle farmers, of cattle ranchers? Does that sound no, right to you? No, it's about 8%. Excuse me. Okay, thank you. 8% of cattle farmers, and yet every single one of those farmers and ranchers throughout the United States is obliged to pay them for their marketing. And there's a lot of abuse, apparently, within... Uh, within how within that organization of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, how they use those dollars that they're getting. So I want you to talk to people, explain to listeners what they are doing with that money. I mean, they are okay. They're supporting companies, which I assume are like Cargill, Tyson's, you know, et cetera, right? The big packers, JBS, National. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Why? Why? You know that everybody knows that campaign got uh, what is it? What's what beef? It's what's for dinner. That was their campaign, right? So how does that not help every farmer? I, I'm a little, you know, a little fuzzy on why that, why that is not a good thing for all farms. Well, let me give you a really good example. Yes, please. Example of what National Capital Beef Association did with, with some of our checkoff dollars, and that was go to Capitol Hill, and they, they uh, in this uh, deal that they negotiated to start selling American beef back to China again, Mm-hmm. Well, NCBA got them to include Canadian and Mexican beef in that deal. Uh-huh. Well, tell me how that helps American farmers. <laughs> I'm not going to. <laughs> they, because that's a secret that only also, NCBA uh, knows. Yeah, they also got them to, to manipulate the regulations around to where if, if uh, a company brings Canadian beef or Mexican beef into this country, if they manipulate it in any way, which includes taking it out of a package and putting it into another package, they can label it as American beef. Yes. So that brings us they to... Also, if they, they bring live cattle in on the hook. Oh. Okay. And, and they, they import tens of thousands of tons and head of cattle from both those countries. Yes. in the United States every year. Now, that's what NCBA is doing for you, mm-hmm. promoting those kinds of things. They also use our checkoff money, we believe, the label against country of origin labels. Yes, I wanted to bring that up. Country of origin labeling is a real sore spot, I know, for American uh, ranchers and farmers. Um, talk a little bit about how that, you know, how the impact of that on, on directly on your, on your share of the food dollar, as it were. What did that mean for you financially? 
Americans prefer American beef. Mm-hmm. If, if they know, if they're told that whether it's really American beef or not, they'll choose it, usually. And uh, um, that, that, if you look at any fruits or vegetables you buy, every one of them is required to have a label on saying which country it came from, except for pork and beef. And oh. the reason they that they anyway so that they can bring in this foreign beef and pork and sell it as American. Right. So, so what happened there was, as I understood it, is that the World Trade Organization, on behalf of Canada and Mexico, brought a suit against the United States, saying that uh, country of origin labeling was going to have a negative impact on their business, their meat business, and that they were going to uh, invoke some massive fines. I think that I think the number was something around thirty-six billion. Am I right in that? No, I think the highest number I ever saw was one billion, and it's our numbers indicate that it would have been somewhere closer to a hundred million. Okay, but go ahead. So this, okay, so I was wildly off on that, but that's fine. The point is, is that it, given the fact that it was maybe a hundred million, or possibly a billion, or possibly three point one billion, now is floating into my brain. But whatever it was, the massive profits of uh, these multinational meat uh, packing companies could easily have covered those fines. So I'm wondering, you know, what? So Congress essentially caved in on this because of those lobbying efforts on behalf of those multinational corporations. Would you agree with that? Yes, there's no question about that, and and no telling how much money they doled out in Washington to to promote their interests there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, you guys, the Organization for Competitive Markets, we were talking about checkoff programs earlier. Um, we, we, you, have, uh, you have introduced or even reintroduced. I thought that was interesting. I'd like you to talk about that for a second. You have reintroduced something, uh, a bill entitled Opportunities for Fairness in Farming, um, otherwise known as OFF. What is that bill going to encompass? And what, what do you, why was it reintroduced? Well, it's uh, it's going to help strengthen our enforcement, we hope, of existing laws that have been on the books for a long time mm-hmm. and introduce some more strict requirements for accountability, uh, being audits of the checkoff money and how it's spent, and more transparency in how that money is being spent. We're... Um, Organization for Competitive Markets has been engaged in a lawsuit for uh, over four years now uh, against the USDA to try to make them, uh, uh, under a Freedom of Information Act request, divulge how our checkoff money is being spent. And and USDA is fighting that along with NCBA. Really? Now, it's it's our money. Uh, The farmers paid it in, and they don't want to tell us how they spent it. They're trying to hide that. They're, they're claiming uh, it's proprietary, that that information <laughs> pertains to their business, and their business is using our money. Right. So they're claiming that they shouldn't have to tell us how they're using that money. Mm-hmm. That doesn't uh, you know, right. that doesn't sm- pass a smell test to me. <laughs> Not even close. So uh, we, we've taken them to court to try to force them to do it. Yeah. And like I said, it's it's meant. I don't know how, how familiar you are with Freedom of Information Act requests, but mm-hmm. I'm a retired federal agent. I'm very familiar with them. I, I mm-hmm. know what I had to divulge any time that a request was 
um, made to the agency that I work for. And, um, you know, there's time limits and everything else imposed on that, and they're very strict. Uh-huh. And they haven't even come close to meeting any of those in this uh, situation. And yet there have been no repercussions for that foot dragging on giving you the information that you have sought through FOIA. No, there hasn't. Who, who would be in charge of that? The Department of Justice? Uh, they would be the agency that decides whether something uh, has been d- done wrong. Uh, and they would hold whoever these people are accountable. And and I'm beginning to wonder if that's not the case, that people have done things they weren't supposed to do, so they're they're fighting the, uh, the release of this information. Sure. That certainly sounds like it to me. Um, I think I thought it was I think I saw it on your website even um, that that you in a, in a very brief uh, interval of time, your investigators uncovered some two hundred thousand dollars worth of untraceable money, as it were, like you couldn't figure out where that money had gone. Two hundred thousand dollars may not seem like huge amount of money, but for the family farms that are <laughs> ponying up that two hundred grand, I'm sure it, it really hurts to see that uh, that kind of and in, in, in only in a three month period, I think it said on the website. Now let's go back yes. to the to this it idea. It wasn't even that long, actually. It was only nine days worth of <gasps> transactions Whoa. that were analyzed by an independent accounting firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they discovered over two hundred thousand dollars in discrepancies in the way the money was being spent. It wasn't. Um, I don't. I don't recall it being hid in some manner or other, but. Um, the ways they were spending it, like uh, they, they used to check off money to fly uh, one, one of their wives to Australia for some kind of a trip. Wow. Uh, they, they loaned one of their members, uh, I, I, if I recall correctly, $100,000 for a down payment on a new house out of checkoff money. God. Yeah. That's shocking. It really yeah, that is. was in nine days' worth of, of transactions. Imagine mm. what must be out there. And that's why, Yeah. Uh, that, that's what we're fighting for and, and what we've gone to court for. And, and, uh, since we're talking about that, I, I want to acknowledge the fact that uh, Humane Society of the United States is providing the, the legal expertise for Organization for Competitive Markets in that lawsuit. Oh, no kidding. Well, that's nice to hear. It's nice to hear that there's some comedy between, uh, um, you know, <laughs> animal agricultural uh, growers and, and the HSUS. I, I like to hear that story. Um, well, actually, actually, we're working at length with HSUS. They're... Recently uh, started creating um, uh, state agriculture advisory councils. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a national agriculture advisory council, which I'm a member of, uh, and we're, we're assisting them in, in creating these individual state agri- uh, agriculture advisory councils. Uh-huh. Now, we just have a few minutes left, Mike, and I want to chat for a second about the Farm Bill. Um, what what kinds of things would you like to see uh, go into the Farm Bill that you feel would most benefit um you know, small and medium-sized family farms. Well, we're going to we're going to try to get this uh, checkoff legislation incorporated into the farm bill. Oh, really? Okay. Yep. How about country uh, of like, origin labor? I'd like labor? to see some uh, some uh, anti-competition uh, legislation included in that. Um, we, we need to get something included in that to to help our dairy farmers. Our dairy farmers oh, yeah. are in dire straits. It's unbelievable the situation that they've been put in, and that's mostly by uh, big ag taking over uh, dairy, essentially, in this country. 
Well, as you know, I've done a, like an eight-part series at this point on ag- on dairy farming in America. And um, um, actually, my guest last week uh, was a guy named Gary Gensky, who works with the National Dairy Producers Organization, which is kind of the opposite. It's the anti-DFA, the Anti-Dairy Farmers of America co-op. Um, right. And, yeah, I know Gary. Uh-huh. And he made an interesting um, suggestion. He said that the people who were running, which I thought was like so benign, it really shocked me. Um, he said that they were just so distant from the farmers that they, you know, are supposed to be advocating for that they don't really understand the issues uh, that face those dairy farms. What I mean, what is one to make of that? Uh, that doesn't seem possible well, to me. They're first of all, they they want to run it as a business and make money for themselves. How, how it ever got turned around from being a co-op and the farmers being the people who run it and and the get the advantage of the revenue from it, I don't know. But they keep increasing costs on the farmers. Uh, uh, to me, a, a co-op and all of the, you know, they, they, they spend, I understand, they have to contribute somewhere around $450 million a year from their milk checkoffs. Well, why isn't all that money going to promote the individual family farmers? I don't know. And since there's only 60, what is it, 60,000 dairy farms left in the United States? From what Something was, like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was well in the hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, 50 years ago. So, right. I mean, even in my but own home state, it's... Yeah, that's that's just another example of how um, these mega corporations, and most of them are multinational corporations, and a lot of them owned by people in other countries, mm-hmm. have taken over agriculture in this country and, and essentially worldwide. You know, they're, um, in the mid-1980s, the farmer's share of the food dollar was... Close to sixty cents today. It's fourteen cents. Oh my lord! It's amazing that we and have any There's no farmers way left. we can survive doing that. No. In the, the mid '80s, a sack of seed corn cost thirty dollars. Today, it costs three hundred and twenty dollars. Wow, we farmers in the mid '80s were getting three dollars a bushel for their corn. Today, they're getting three dollars a bushel for their corn. Right. So yep. you know those numbers just don't work, and the, the American consumer needs to. to stand up and pay attention and get behind us and help us change this. We can't keep going the way we are. Uh, and if we do, all of their food is going to be raised by giant multinational mega corporations instead of family farmers. Yeah. They should be extremely concerned about that. Well, I, I th- from a food security point of view, I find it very alarming. Um, and then, of course, from the humanitarian point of view, it's just a, it's just a tragic gutting of the heartland of America, as far as I can tell, because the the impact on small towns and rural communities is indisputable of what's happening in terms of, you know, going from sixty cents on the food dollar to down to fourteen or whatever it was you just said. I mean, you know, just shocking, shocking uh, statistics. Yeah. Well, let me lay a couple more numbers on you. Our, Do it. Uh, uh, in 2015 and 16, Pilgrim's Pride, who I raised broiler chickens for, uh, paid their stockholders $2.2 billion mm-hmm. in dividends. Yeah. And up until a month ago, it had been almost 20 years since, since growers had had an increase in base pay. Wow. Meanwhile, yeah. the cost so of what, living increases. What's happening been... is they're, they're drawing all of the wealth out of our rural communities and sending it to Wall Street. Yes. And, and the effect that's having is... It's driving small American family farmers off the land. You know, yeah. uh, I can't tell you the number of, of family farmers that have told me I uh, I got to figure something out, something to do to keep my kids on the land. 
Yes. Because the farm just doesn't generate enough revenue for me and, and another family. But they can't do it. So their kids have to leave the farm and go to the city to get a job, yeah. to make a living. Yeah. And that, that's wrong. We, we have got to change that. Americans should be terribly concerned about that. What do you think consumers could do to help support uh, family farming um, more successfully than they do now, aside from building awareness? Because I think, you know, everybody, I, I don't say everybody, but many people in this country never give a thought to where their food comes from. And that's kind of normal, I think, on a certain level. But um, it has gotten to the point where people literally think the grocery stores, I think, stock themselves and that there's no one, <laughs> you know what I mean? That there's no one yeah. actually doing the work. And they're just like those trays of, of meat, you know, in their, in their cryovac come, just come magically from the shelving. Um, yeah. So what can consumers, how can consumers get more involved in this? And what, and what do you think would be the best ways for them to, you know, spend their food dollars or voice their concerns or, you know, whatever they can do? What, what, what kinds of steps can they take? Well, they can ask their growers, uh, is, is what you are selling us here supporting American family farmers? Or the grocers, I should say. Right. When they go to the grocery store, ask them where that food came from. Is that supporting American farmers? You know, they, uh, one of our, um, we had an organizational meeting down in Alabama here a couple months ago and, and decided to, to serve steak for supper that night. And um, the uh, farmer who, who organized that and, and did the cooking had to go two counties away to find American beef. Really? That's right. Most of it was Mexican that he found in the grocery stores down there. Wow. And, you know, this is, this is the heartland of America in Alabama. Yeah. So if, if that's the case there, what's what's going on in the big cities? And part part of what these big uh, meat packers are doing is they're, you know, people worldwide love American beef because we're about the best at it there is. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And uh, they, they sell all the good cuts and the high-dollar beef to uh, other countries where they because they make a tremendous amount of money on it. Uh-huh. And, then, and then they bring in Mexican and Canadian beef that's not as good a quality as far as I'm concerned and sell it to Americans. Yeah, for the for the same price that they would have sold American beef for the for the most part. <laughs> right, right. But they're selling those premium cuts to other countries. Like where they go, where is it going? I would say China. I would say uh, yep. the Arab, Japan, Middle Eastern Europe. countries. Yeah, I mean the Europeans have a pretty pretty sweet beef supply. I was in uh, northern Italy a couple of weeks ago, and I went on a cattle tour. Um, not a cattle tour, but I went to a cattle breeding facility where they do uh, Piedmontese beef. And, you know, the Italians and the French are very, very focused on sort of the, what they call the domain name, you know, like they, they, Piedmontese is, is a, it's a premium brand and they, and the, and the whole country understands that that's a premium brand. Um, and it's the same in France when they have the Limousin cattle or, you know, the Charolais. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I think it's, it's a lesson that perhaps American farmers could take, uh, in terms of how they market their own brands, um, you know, sort of as regional specialties or something like that. I mean, I feel like that's a yeah. lesson that, that American farmers could take um, and understand and kind of bypass the NCBA and somehow get together in some sort of other type of co-op or marketing platform that would help them uh, distinguish themselves and, put, and, and make sure that that label goes onto, onto, their, uh, onto their beef or their chicken or their pork, whatever it is, um, because... Mm. Because that's, you know, obviously the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the Pork Producers Council, you know, the, the American Chicken Council or whatever it's called, you know, they're not doing that. They're not going to do that for you. 
So no, you have to. But they're but, just promoting the big companies. Yeah, but but then I wonder if because the big companies are the ones who are actually doing most of the processing distribution, and they're the ones who really hated country of origin labeling, not only because they uh, wanted to be able to bring in beef from other countries, low-cost beef from other countries, but also because they claimed that it would, um, you know, clog up their supply stream because they couldn't differentiate between the, you know, the different supply streams and the labeling would be prohibitively expensive and that would be passed on to the consumer. And, of course, American people don't want to spend that much more money on their food, blah, blah, blah. Um, so how would you, how would you, uh, this is my last question and then I'll have to let you go. Um, how would you combat that problem? Because I know that if you don't play ball with some of these packers, they won't take your animals. And actually I'm wondering how you stay in business with Pilgrim's Pride. Why aren't they sticking pins in your voodoo doll, Mike? I mean, (laughs) well, they do every day. I'm a. They, uh, Why do they keep giving you contracts, though? Because I would think that you would be the, exactly the type of person that they would not want to have work for them. Well, they've tried uh, to use what I call clandestine measures to, to force me out, uh, bringing me bad chicks and bad feed, knowing that I, you know my production would be bad. But the uh, uh, the biggest obstacle they've tried to overcome and haven't been able to is the fact that I don't have to have their money to live. Right. Um, so you don't have big do, debt. They abuse them terribly. Yeah. You don't have big debt for your chicken houses and stuff like that. No. Well, I did, but I, I've, my farm's paid for. I have enough outside income. I can live comfortably. I don't I don't have to have them to live. And right. like I say, uh, unfortunately, a, <clears throat> a large portion of our poultry growers live from chicken check to chicken check, we yes. call it. Yep. And uh, can't afford to... Do the things that I've done. Yes, obviously. <laughs> well, and God I, bless you, my I man, for doing it. I would believe that if, if, if uh, you see something that's wrong and you're in a position to do something about it, you're morally and ethically obligated to try to do something about it. Well, congratulations. I'm, th- I'm glad there's at least one of you left. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a few of us around the country, but unfortunately, there's not enough. Pretty few and far between, my friend. That's my experience. So, you know, like I said, I've been sitting in this chair for 10 years asking these questions. Um, you know, you, 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 you are running an uphill battle or I don't want to mix my metaphors, but it's really, it's a very difficult situation. So, um, I realized that we did not completely conclude our discussion about OFF opportunities for fairness in farming legislation. I just want to go back to that for one second. Um, because one of the things that is in that bill is, uh, prohibiting the checkoff dollar from being spent lobbying. How, how do you yes. think that's going to work out? I just want to go back to that for one second. Well, um, it can be used for advertising, promotion, just any, um, essentially any other way other than lobbying Capitol Hill. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't, I don't have any problem, and I don't think anybody else should, uh, using our own money to do our lobbying. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we're, I'm going to let you go with that. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for the work that you do, which I think is so very important. Um, and also for being on the show and answering all these crazy questions from a, you know, Northeasterner who doesn't really, you know, <laughs> doesn't really actually do this stuff well, for a living. <laughs> uh, if uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to encourage folks to go to our organization for competitive markets uh, website at competitivemarkets.com and we have a wealth of information there about the issues that we work on and the things that are affect, affecting family farmers. And 
I'd, I'd like them to, to think about the fact that if they don't help us change this, in my lifetime, we're going to see the extinction of the small American family farmer. That's right. So, folks, listen to Mike. Go to the website, Organization for Competitive Markets, and read up and write to your legislators, especially folks who are living in the Midwest and in the Farm Belt. Um, that's where you really need to apply the pressure. I don't, you know, I, I yep. or any, actually anywhere in the country, but there, yeah, there especially, have, uh, you need help. We have links uh, on our website. It's competitivemarkets.com where mm-hmm. they can uh, look up their phone numbers for their congressmen and senators, and we even had suggested language they can use if they want to call, and we have a wealth of information there. Okay, Mike. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really enjoyed our discussion. I hope you'll come back another time. I'd be glad to, and we appreciate you helping us get the word out. You betcha. And thanks to my sponsor, Wisconsin Cheese. I really appreciate the support for Heritage Radio Network and uh, and all of you listeners. We're always fundraising, even if we're not whining about money on a regular basis. So just remember to press that beating heart in the corner of our website. Donate some money. Keep this program and others like it on the air. Thanks for listening today. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.